Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Okay, let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and our own homes. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex, together with my other familiar strangers. We've got TFS alumna, Jody Lee Trimbath. Hey! current TFS member, Simon Theobald. Hello. And ANU PhD in anthropology student and host of Myanmar Musings, Luke Corbin. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. All right, so Simon, coming to us live from Germany. What have you been thinking? I'm actually coming to you live. Actually, that's true. Blatantly not live for anyone else. So, Simon, what have you been thinking this week? I have been thinking about culture shock. Having just moved to Germany, I'm in the position where, I mean, Germany's not new to me. I've been here a couple of times before, but I've never lived here before. So this is the first time that I'm actually trying to put down roots. I am in a situation where, once again, I don't know the language very well. I don't know how anything works. I... Um, lost in a sea of bureaucracy and people who don't really want to speak English to me and I'm trying to communicate to them with my very 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 mediocre German and I just thought somehow that anthropology would better have set me up for going to another country having already I've done this kind of once before you know I've been to Iran to do the same thing for though I guess my question this week is for when you went over did you feel prepared? Um, is this the second time you've moved abroad? I, have, I moved abroad first time for fieldwork. In my mind, I feel like fieldwork in Iran was actually easier than what I'm currently experiencing in Germany. Because it was more structured? Because I had a purpose. I was there to write a PhD. And I had an environment that was looking to support me. As in, I came, I had like a university affiliation. I was doing language courses through university I was staying on campus, etc. I mean, it was a very kind of um, controlled environment, but in some ways it was very easy to get through. Whereas here, I'm just some schmuck. What did you guys find? Regarding my fieldwork, I had lived in the region before, yes, twice before. And so although the country Myanmar was quite new and different, um, I had some sort of regional understandings. So I didn't have that experience, but I can imagine that it would be quite disorienting when you are intellectually engaged with the other as an anthropologist. You're constantly thinking about it and thinking about your own behavior in other settings and then finding yourself, yeah, in a new one that you didn't plan for and you don't have a compass. And, okay, you're a schmuck, but, yeah, you're also just sort of free, right? What, what do you do? Do you just follow your hobbies or do you latch on to something that you find familiar but strange and you know make a new little project for yourself it's i'm kind of jealous actually when i think about it i don't know why i'm going to i'm going to mention anthony giddens i don't know why but anthony giddens talks about this idea of the kind of umwelt 
this kind of socially accomplished space in which people are able to kind of perform tasks in a manner that they are, that is like safe for them. Um, and you step outside your umwelt when you go to somewhere else and you have to learn all the new skills again, etc. I feel like that is definitely what happened to me now. And I've, I, maybe I've just forgotten how hard that initial period of field work is when you're trying to ingratiate yourself into a new society. For those of you who didn't learn a language, how you, when you're trying to pick up a language, it's, it's just a hard slog. What I think is also, I think everything everyone said is really spot on, but I'd also add to that, I think there's a temporal aspect as well. Field work, when I've just lived overseas and taught English or just done the classic like gap year, there's been a fairly finite date. Even if I haven't known exactly, there's always been a sense that I'm coming home in about 12 to 18 months, give or take, which is a very different way of existing in a country or anywhere than being, well, this is potentially it for the future. And I imagine that is also a very confronting aspect. So I wrote a little bit about this. I, I blogged about this a while ago, the idea of, of post-bureaucratic stress and the way that trying to do the most ordinary of things when you are in another country makes you feel like matter out of place. And so I, I used some Mary Douglas Purity and Danger to imagine myself as dirt that um, was not where it was supposed to be. And particularly, I think, if you've lived somewhere else and you've found some degree of mastery in that experience, having to now reimagine yourself as a, a novice and uh, somebody who is childlike in their, their level of being able to engage, it's an incredibly confronting experience to, to go back to that level. So, you know, I think your original question was, does fieldwork or anthropology prepare you for any of that? And I think the answer is it gives you tools to be able to analyze your own experience. And that's kind of handy because, you know, you don't have a job anyway. What else are you going to be doing with your time? Just trying to learn German so I can get a job. <laughs> All right. You don't, you don't just want to navel gaze? Uh, I'd like to make some money. Ah, oh, selling out. Yeah, I know. I'm not selling out. I'd like to get a, I'd like to get an anthropology job, but I still think I'll need to learn German. Ah, okay. I suppose we'll allow it then. Well, unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for. Jody, what have you been thinking about this week? I have a confession to make. Uh, hi, my name's Jody, and I am addicted to this book series that I'm reading. And as a consequence, I am thinking about story and what it is and what it means. So. I kind of want to ask what you think story is to anthropologists. If, if a neuroscience or psychological perspective is to say story is, uh, so it has two functions. It, on the one hand, is a dopamine hit that allows us to um, want to learn. We learn things in order to survive, but we get the, the hit that story gives us and that makes us want to learn things, and then therefore we get to survive. What do we think it is from an anthropological perspective? I did a creative arts undergraduate degree, so I went through those years of reading all of the kind of classic story literature, like uh, McKee's story and Vogel's you know, Hero's Journey and Joseph Campbell and Hero with a Thousand Faces and that kind of thing. And so I've always thought of story as being just an intrinsic part of the human experience. It's about imagination and it's a metaphor for life you know beginning middle ending that's 
that's what we're all doing, as tragic as it is. This makes me realise that we have not had anyone bioanth on the show. Mm, true. And I'd really love somebody to hear, to ask them, do other creatures tell stories? I feel like that's a uniquely human thing, but I certainly don't have the knowledge to say that with any sort of authority. I would intuitively argue that they they must. I mean, if they can communicate, then they're telling stories. Of course, I don't speak iguana, but just if, if it's possible for communities of animals to understand that there's certain things they should do and there's certain things that are dangerous to do, then there's storytelling going on, I think. So does it come down to where, how we define story? So is any communication a story? I don't know that it is because I think... For it to be a story, we have to be able to internalise what information means to us and probably more importantly how we feel about it and interpret it through that feeling. I don't know. What's a story to you, Simon? Is a utopia a story? A fable? I'm not going to answer that question. That's too hard. Um, (laughs) I think the question of what is a story is really hard. I don't think I can really talk to that, but what I can talk about is the idea of what I think storytelling is for anthropology. I think that it's quite important. The anthropology in some ways, more than any discipline, is dependent upon the idea of story. And I mean, I guess that, I guess I'm mean, talking of a story of like a specific kind. Academia is about telling stories, right? Um, it's just about how you tell them, but anthropology tells a particular kind of stories. It tells the stories that people tell each other in a more kind of prototypical, you know, this is, this is a story. And I think that's really important. I think sometimes in the quest for theory in anthropology, we lose sight of what anthropology is, which is basically just us telling each other stories about people who are telling each other stories. And I think if we lose the, the depth and richness of those stories and make it too dry and theoretical, then we lose a lot of what the joy of anthropology is. And also the purpose to some extent, because if this, this neuroscience perspective is right and we are neurologically structured um, in a way that makes our brain light up when it feels the emotions of a story as opposed to hearing things in other ways, then anthropology is uniquely positioned to be able to provide information in the world. And when we get too theoretical and when our language becomes too highfalutin, then we lose that opportunity. It goes away because who's going to read our work then? One more thing about this crossover that you've both made me think of is that, you know, stories are the kind of like the encoding of data, right? If you're going to write using experiential data, then like you say, Simon, you're, you're basically dealing with stories, your own stories, which you have interpreted, you know? So, yeah, there's kind of like a formal aspect to it that stories are the data with which socio-cultural anthropology derived from ethnography deals in. But then also there's a distinction, I think, going back to what Jody's talking about there with stories, because I think that what I was saying earlier is that I've got a much broader definition of what a story is. And um, when I was talking about the interspecies stuff, like I think that birds talk to each other because they, you know, they understand when something is dangerous or they communicate and call and there has to be some kind of collective memory register involved in that with a temporal element that would (laughs) mean that I would call it a story. Um, Unfortunately, I think that's the end of that chapter, although it feels a bit incomplete. Nice segue. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So I'll throw it over to Luke. 
What have you been thinking about this week? Right, I've been thinking about Cologne, and uh, I was thinking I'd start by asking you guys a question. So, the fastest-selling fragrance in the history of Australia just came out and just broke the record. Any ideas on what that might be? The fastest-smelling fragrance in the history of Australia. Yeah, so uh, a fragrance was released onto the market, and it broke a record to become the fastest-selling fragrance in the history of Australian fragrance. And this is fragrance that you wear on your body? Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. It's I wouldn't be... have a clue, but is it linked to a celebrity or something? No, it's not. It's not linked, is it linked to, to a beer. Yeah, so it is first. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So the fastest uh, the fastest selling fragrance in Australian history is First Ascent by VB. And it no. sold over 25,000 units in the first 72 hours of its launch in August. <laughs> and that is amazing. I just wonder, what does this say about, you know, Australians in 2020, Australian men in 2020, COVID? You know, this is a time when no one's going outside and smelling each other. I just thought <laughs> this is a very unusual kind of confluence of events to um, pass me by this morning in my reading. I just wanted to throw it out there. Um, so what do you think as, as fellow Australians about this little nugget? Have you smelled it? It Does it smell like beer? Is that its thing? It cannot be. I haven't smelt it, but what I've heard is that it's an amazing art and science, the whole aroma industry or whatever it's called. And yeah, they've tried to imbue it with something of the beer, but I have not smelled it, so I can't comment directly. I have to think it tells us something we already knew about Australian culture, which is about larrikinism and prankster-like behaviour. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely something in that with the with the larrikinism. But I also don't know much about the fragrance industry. I would assume that this is perhaps the first time that the record has been held by a kind of masculinized fragrance. And thinking about the origins of VB's advertising and marketing, uh, you know, it's always, up until very recently, it's run on this kind of platform of, you know, uh, blue shorts, beer gut, white man out in the fields drinking VB. And uh, yeah, just in the just in the last 10, 15 years, it seems to be getting a bit more ironic to the point where, you know, we have this combination. I just think it... It's signposting something to do with changing masculinity in Australia. Yeah. Oh, look, I think there's a couple of fascinating things going on there. One is, because I remember, um, okay, so this is going to be a total mystery for our American listeners. VB had a long-running campaign that was, Hard and Thirst deserves a big cold beer. And it goes, you can get it, milk and a cow. Matter of fact, I got it now. Or whatever. Said a whole lot of things. And that ad in various formulations, ran forever in a day. And then I want to say about 10 years ago, they flipped it and suddenly it started talking about inner city Australians. Really? Where it was a whole lot of stuff like, instead of all the farm work and metal work and stuff that it normally was, it was suddenly a whole lot of things like going out at night, getting a garlic kebab, and just like kind of they described a night out on the town. Again, very ironically. But at the same time, it really tracked a shift in masculinity. Well, when you think about it, so my, my dad has told me that when he was a teenager in the 60s that his father called him all sorts of very homophobic names because he wore deodorant. 
and his father's generation did not wear deodorant and it was not a manly thing to wear deodorant. And so, (laughs) we'll try not to think too much about that in a sensory way, but uh, yeah, I mean, if masculinity has changed that much since working class 60s norms, then it seems entirely possible to me that we would use fragrance and use bodily chemical changes as a way to demonstrate how far we've come in the opposite direction to that. I don't know, Simon, should we be posting you a little uh, shipment of VB cologne? Sure, that's exactly what I want. It made me feel like I'm at home. I only have one thing to say. The thing about smells and masculinity is interesting because, I mean, it's, it, I don't know, Jody, I can't believe that your father's father would have been so anti-smell because the... I'm pretty sure he smelled. Well, opposed to particular kinds of smells because covering of smells is such a, it has a long history. It's not just a, a feminine thing. It has this long history in both Western and Western societies. I mean, it's, an, it's a really interesting concept. What is what this idea of the kind of rough-hewn Australian who wanted to smell bad come from? I don't know. Maybe we'll never find out. Unfortunately, I've got to cut that short. So the question is, what have I been thinking about this week? Recently, although not so recent by the time this podcast comes out, David Graeber has passed away quite suddenly and unexpectedly. He wrote quite a lot, was prodigious, and I've read a lot of his work. But there's one that I want to reflect on that I always found quite fun as a bit of a nerd. In his book, Utopia of Rules, he pointed out a bit of an irony. It's all about bureaucracy. And he pointed out that in Dungeons & Dragons, in order to have this amazing epic fantasy adventure the first thing you have to do is sit down and fill out a whole lot of paperwork and then in order to have an amazing imaginative adventure you have to follow a whole lot of rules roll dice and use those to judge your outcome and that's how you have an adventure so my question to you guys is what do you make of that supposed paradox of david graeber Is imagination kind of built on rules? Or, as Grave the Anarchist would sort of say, should we kind of rethink our conceptions of play and all that together? Well, I think that, you know, imagination is not based on rules, but if you want to imagine in a group of five, then you have to agree on certain set of, yeah, formal limits, which is what people do when they sit down to play their Dungeons and Dragons. Everyone has to be speaking the same language, as it were, or else... You won't get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's not fun if everybody's playing by different rules because I think in most contexts, most humans I've come across at least have some degree of preference towards fairness, at least for themselves. And it's very difficult for things to be meted out fairly when everybody's playing by different rules. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point because that's almost exactly where he sort of goes with that. Just comes at it oh, really? from the opposite direction, if you will. Because he then uses all that to talk about the difference between what he says is games and play. Which, of course, you play games, so it sounds like a bit of a contradiction. But he sort of says games is when you do competitive things with rules, and you're kind of often gen- you're supposed to be nominally from a fair and equal footing. And play is like kids in the playground just kind of doing whatever comes. His argument then is that those rules, they give the impression 
of equality and fairness, but actually when you look behind the rules, as we know in life, if everyone's treated the same, that doesn't necessarily actually make it particularly fair. It gives a false impression of fairness. I disagree with that, actually. I don't think that, Mm -hmm. like, when children play in the playground that there aren't rules. I mean, it depends on on what age group we're talking about as to how sophisticated the degree of rules are going to be. But even when you, you watch really young children play, they say things like, let's pretend that we are in this context and you are this kind of person and I am this kind of person. And then as the story progresses, then they will say, oh, but you can't say that because that doesn't fit with this part of the story. So I think that even in very young children freestyling in their play, they set up structures for themselves so that they are you know, playing in the same universe. Simon, do we secretly love bureaucracy? That's what his argument is. That's what we secretly love bureaucracy. If when we complain about it, we secretly love it. I don't think argument. you could have a complicated society without it. Millions of people together need some kind of horrible apparatus to keep them all from running around crazy like their head, like chickens with their heads cut off. But I'm something of like an anarcho-communist, and I maybe we should um, turn towards living back in groups of you know, 10 or 20 people and just having radically egalitarian societies to make up for this oppressive weight of bureaucracy. I really, I don't know. I have no clear answer to these questions. Well, I've been thinking about bureaucracy a little bit because in the last couple of days, um, all the barricades have gone up in Yangon and all of the streets are being um, are being turned into little people's republics and all the memes are going around that, you know, if you're on 13th Street, and you can't go to 14th Street. And this is all being condoned by the ward administrators who kind of are the point of contact and administration for the government, the lowest level. I've been wondering how complicit really these ward administrators are in the sort of micro politics of all this stuff because there's there's bureaucracy and there's also like norms you know like there was no government directives that people should start barricading their streets and uh, citizens screening who's allowed to come onto the street and things like that even when there is extreme bureaucracy like in Myanmar the norms are sort of very different when it comes to doing things efficiently it kind of fails and the people need to rely on themselves you know well unfortunately we do have i don't know if it's a rule or if it's a norm on this show but unfortunately it's telling me it's about time to wrap it up what a bureaucrat i know right because i just have these strict guidelines no play (laughs) well thank you very much i'd like to thank jody lee trimbuff thanks alex simon theobald thank you and luke corbin cheers and i'm your host alex Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fox. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. And you can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. Tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. And special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange. Bye.